0: The Economist. Hello and welcome to a special episode of The Intelligence, marking two years of war in Ukraine. Since February 24th, 2022, tens of thousands have lost their lives. Front lines have moved by kilometers and then just meters. Ukraine's military leadership has changed, but its president has not. Volodymyr Zelensky's term ends this year, but the war may delay an election as it's delayed so much else in Ukraine. For now, he remains the steady voice of the country. Yesterday, as so many times before, warning of the costs of failing to aid his war effort.
1: Will Ukrainians survive without Congress support? Of course, but not all of us. And if we understand this price, if the world is ready for this, okay, you will see it. But it's tragedy. It will be tragedy for all of us, not only for Ukraine, not only for Ukrainians, for all Europe. And you will see.
0: For many, an end to the conflict may seem impossibly distant. But on this anniversary, it's important to consider what has not been lost in all this time. To take stock of things, I'm speaking with Shashank Joshi, our defense editor, Edward Carr, deputy editor of The Economist, and Arkady Ostrovsky, our Russia editor. Now, Shashank, this time last year, we were talking about a Russian offensive. We ended up talking about the Ukrainian counteroffensive at great length. How have the front lines shifted over the past year?
2: The honest answer, Jason, is that they haven't moved an awful lot at all. This time last year, Arkady, Ed, and I were all talking to Western officials, generals, uh, senior officials, and they were getting reasonably impatient as to why the offensive wasn't picking up steam, why it wouldn't begin sooner than the Ukrainians planned it. And when it came, It was disappointing. It hardly moved the front lines in the south. And the Russian response, which has been underway for many months now, that has also been pretty modest. If you were looking at this in a zoomed out map of Ukraine, you would hardly be able to tell the changes on either side. And overall, I think neither side has the capacity to fundamentally change that in the short term.
0: So that's a bit about where the fighting is. What about the how? Is there a change in the way this war is being fought?
2: I would say that the density of intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance, and the density of firepower faced by both sides has increased. And the most notable form that has taken has been the profusion of first-person view drones, FPV drones. These are small racing drones repurposed to carry explosives, but of course, many other longer-range strike drones as well. And the net effect of that has essentially been uh, that both armies find it incredibly difficult to move in any meaningful fashion. If you move, you get seen and you get struck. And so that has contributed to this kind of stalemate or relatively static, sticky battlefield. However, perhaps the most dynamic part of the front has been the Black Sea. Ukraine has used both missiles and sea drones to very good effect. It has destroyed a significant chunk of the Black Sea fleet, and it has restored export of grain out of the ports on its south to volumes that are beginning to approach pre-war levels. So Ukraine deserves a great deal of credit for the war at sea, where I think things are looking a lot more positive than on land.
0: I see you nodding along there, Edward. What's your take? You know, Jason, what strikes me is that given
1: this is an anniversary and we look back to the beginning of the war is just the contrast between the sort of fighting you're seeing now and the fighting you saw initially. One of the things I've done for this anniversary is to go back and read some of the first books coming out, giving an account of the early days of the war. And it suited Ukraine so much more uh, than the situation today. Ukrainian troops used their initiative, their inventive, it was mobile, they were underestimated by Russia. You contrast that today with fixed lines. It's about mass armor. It's not mobile. It's stuck. And it's a test of resources. Which side can bring more manpower? Which side can bring more armor and munitions? And, and that's a situation
0: that favors Russia. And Arkady, what do you think of that assessment?
3: I think that's absolutely right, and I think what Ed describes in a way was reflected in this. Commanding Chief Valery Zaluzhny, I think he was the right person in the right place at the beginning of the war because Zelensky was very fixed on communicating to the world and to his people, and Zaluzhny was fighting the war. But Zaluzhny, I found in my conversation with him, sort of encompassed, embodied that Ukrainian spirit. He allowed for that Ukrainian network, society to do its thing, and he was very inventive himself. In some ways, he was part of that sort of decentralized war effort at the beginning. He's now gone. He's been fired. And now we do see, I think, much more to. Ex-Soviet armies, except Russian is a larger army with greater resources, and Ukraine is a smaller Soviet army, but it's basically still two Soviet armies fighting each other. We're kind of stuck in the
0: trenches of the First World War. So as much as you say things aren't moving, there is still territory that is being lost, all the more galling then for Ukraine, that it's kind of losing bits and pieces of territory.
2: It is. The biggest recent change is the fall of Adivka, this is not a particularly militarily significant town, but it is the first town that has fallen since Bakhmut almost a year ago. That's a substantial blow. I certainly hear some concerns among people that the Russians have sizable reserves and that they are pushing on other parts of the front, including in the south. I don't think the Russians have enough ammunition or enough, indeed, training and skill to be able to exploit a breakthrough to conduct any kind of blitzkrieg through the Ukrainian lines. But I think the pressure is mounting, and I am concerned about particularly the effect this loss is going to have on morale within Ukraine's armed forces.
0: At the mention of morale, our senior producer on the intelligence, Sarah Larniuk, has been uh, trying to get a sense of, of how that might affect the forces on the ground, and has been traveling in Ukraine in, in recent weeks.
4: So I got here to Kramatorsk on February 14th, and it was a really funny day to land in Kramatorsk on the train and to see more than just soldiers coming back to the front line, but also spouses and girlfriends primarily, coming in on the train to see their partners on Valentine's Day of all days. It was just like this small moment of love, and more than that, hope. But I will say that these kinds of occurrences are increasingly rare at the front line here because morale is lower than I've ever seen it before and lower than I actually could have imagined. Certainly the first anniversary was kind of a stock taking of what they had lost, but now on the second anniversary, it's more about realizing that this is just their life now and they're feeling further and further away from the lives they left behind. The people I'm talking to here have been here for 15, 17, 19 months, really without any rotation away from the front line. But the people who volunteered early are also noticing that mobilized troops have a much different mindset arriving here. Whereas the volunteers who came here early understood what was at stake and they had the motivation. The people that are coming in now didn't wanna come and it shows. And it all just feels really hopeless. There really has been no good news. And what they're hearing instead is about losses in places like Bakhmut and Avdivka, where they just hear about the sheer magnitude of loss of life. And none of these people want to become cannon fodder. They don't want to have their lives lost and, and feel like it meant nothing. And so increasingly you're hearing about soldiers desperate to find ways to get out of here. And that means desertions, which involve soldiers just walking away, but not being able to go home either because the authorities would find them there. And a number of stories were told to me about soldiers who have married women they found on classifieds with severe disabilities for a cost. And this is one of the ways that soldiers can get out of military service is if they have to care for a loved one with severe disabilities. So this is the extent of how low morale has gotten here on the front line.
0: Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices Now, Arkady, you were in Ukraine in September. Was that kind of slipping morale clear to you even then?
3: I think it wasn't as clear as it is now. I'm not surprised because when Frontline doesn't move at all. After two years, people are exhausted and they don't see how they can achieve something. And it's true that in the first months of the war, two things were happening. On the one hand, just the shock of the war and the existential threat was there all the time. And every Ukrainian knew that they just had to throw themselves into it to throw Russia back because they were defending their homes. That's a very different proposition from now when the idea is to retake territory It's much harder to mobilize people when there is no immediate threat to you and yet you're told to go and liberate territory when you know you don't have the means. You know that this is not going to happen. So what are you doing it for? And the exhaustion sets in. And I think one important correction to it is we know a lot more about Ukraine than we know about Russia. But from what we do here uh, and from the videos that are coming from from the Russian side that are recorded by the mobilized soldiers, by what they're... Loved ones are saying it's kind of not dissimilar. And I think there is that sense on both sides. The difference, and I think this is the fundamental difference, is that Russia is an oppressive totalitarian state where you can put soldiers or the police on the other side and they will shoot if you start deserting. And Ukraine is a democratic society and you can't just force people into the trenches.
0: So focusing then on this significant drop in morale in the military, Shashank, what do you think needs to be done? How can this be turned around? Is this a leadership question?
2: Well, first of all, Arkady's already alluded to the firing of General Zaluzhny, this very charismatic, very popular general, and his replacement with a new general, General Alexander Sersky, who was the head of the Ukrainian ground forces. Now, Sersky is a much more divisive figure. I was in Munich recently seeing a lot of Western generals and asked them about Sersky. And a lot of them said, look, he's very experienced. He's very knowledgeable. He did heroic things in the defense of Kiev." in the early months and in the Ukrainian counter-offensive in Kharkiv later that year. But there's no denying he provokes strong and sometimes very hostile reactions among his men. So that sense of prickliness will have to change. He will have to find a softer style. But in my mind, the fundamental issues with this campaign are issues that are much deeper than individuals. And I would point to three fundamental things. One of them is mobilization. Ukraine desperately needs more people, but just having more men isn't enough. You need training capacity to actually give them the skills they need to fight. One of the big problems with the counter-offensive last year was that you had men with perhaps five or six weeks of experience in complex combined arms warfare being asked to breach these formidable Russian defenses And the final thing I'll say, which I think is completely essential, uh, even if you have men, even if you have training, it is ammunition. Avdivka was lost in large part because American ammunition was slowing down and trickling away. And Ukraine is going to be outgunned again and again in the same way unless an American aid package comes through or unless European arms factories can ramp completely up.
1: I think the worry for me in this, Jason, is that this kind of warfare, especially when Ukraine depends so much on foreign support, is based upon a narrative of plucky Ukraine standing up to the bully of Russia. And those early days of the war exhibited just how rousing and powerful this story was. It's a very different proposition when you have a country that's stuck, retreating, poor morale, doesn't look like it can win. But there's one thing that we should not lose sight of. Russia's original plan was to go in, decapitate the government in Kiev, install a puppet ruler, friend and crony of Putin's. That's not going to happen. I can't see how Russia, even if it's winning hundreds of meters, towns like Avdiivka. I can't see it occupying very large parts of Ukraine. And if it does occupy large parts, it'll fight a guerrilla war that will bleed it over the years. So there's a fundamental sense in which I, I think that Russia, even if it's winning this phase of the war, hasn't won in the really grand project of trying to ensure that Ukraine slips back into Russia's orbit. And it's very important on an anniversary like this that we stand back and take the big
0: picture of what's going on. You say that Ukraine has decided for itself that it is not going to let that initial vision come to pass, that Russia will not simply occupy Ukraine. At the same time, though, there is a a similar kind of discontent among even civilians, and that's something that that Sarah has also been looking into in Mykolaiv.
4: So you use this fan for... Everything for the church, I
5: imagine. Yes, yes. Yeah, I use it for uh, humanitarian aid delivery.
4: Oleksii Novrotsky is a pastor in the southern city of Mykolaiv. Churches down here have become community hubs, delivering everything from food and medication to one of the most critical resources in a city that continues to have damaged infrastructure, clean drinking water. He says most of the people who remain in Mykolaiv are older and living off very small pensions.
5: After two years of war, we can see that Ukrainians are very tired and sick of war. I would say that every Ukrainian family has someone who is fighting at the moment. Every family has someone who has died. Most of Ukrainians, they still thinking and supporting Ukrainian independence. We have unity in this, but we have many divisions within society because many women with kids, they left the country, and men are staying here. It changes the family dynamics, and it will be a huge problem in the future. Also, people who were wounded on the battlefields, they come back, but they are changed. They became more aggressive, and uh, I would say that parents and wives they are not ready they do not understand those who come back from the battlefields
4: and what about mobilization I know you obviously work with a lot of men in your congregation what impact is that having on the population that that now if you walk down the street you could get your notice that you have to go to a recruitment office Mm
5: -hmm. yeah those men who stay in the city Many of them just try to hide themselves because they hear that uh, army, it's not a movie, it's not patriotic uh, propaganda, it's quite difficult and many things depend on your commander. I, I know many men who try to hide themselves from mobilization. Those soldiers who come back from the battlefield They look at those men and I can predict that it might be a big problem in the future within men's society in Ukraine. The same, we have this division and this tension between those who prefer to stay here and those who left the country.
4: How do you feel looking forward after two years of this?
5: I would say that our people, they try to find something which would ignite the hope. Our life as Ukrainians is still unpredictable even after two years of heavy, difficult fightings. So I would say that hope is the most deficit stuff here in Ukraine at the moment. You're short on hope. Yes, I would say yes. At this moment, yes.
0: We've heard then how people who are in the military are trying to find their way out. We've heard how civilians who are not yet in the military are trying to hide from that possibility. We're hearing that there is a a deficit of hope, very clear cut. How can that not affect the war effort moving on from now?
1: Well, it's bound to, obviously. And we may have got the impression from those first heroic weeks of war that this would somehow be easy. It was never going to be easy and war's not pretty, it's ugly and horrible and suffering on this scale is bound to mark a society. But I don't think we should extrapolate from that to a collapse of Ukraine. I think that would be a big mistake for a couple of reasons. One is that we don't have the reporting from Russia that corresponds to this level of detail or sincerity or openness. So we don't know that. The second thing is that It's one thing for society and for soldiers and civilians to suffer enormously in a war. It's quite another thing for them to give up entirely. And I still believe that the prospect of throwing it all in to become a satellite of Russia is totally unacceptable to the Ukrainian public. I see Ukraine sticking this out.
3: I agree with that and I think the question is how do you get Ukraine to defend and expose the futility of the Russian effort and I think it's not just the sheer terror that Putin is is using to force men into trenches and it's not just mobilization putting guns at people's heads it's actually money a lot of what Putin managed to do is to find the price of people's life. He is paying quite a lot of money, you know, five times as much as a person could make in a small town. And a combination of repression and financial incentive is driving people in the trenches. I think that we can't expect Ukraine today, after two years when all the volunteers have already gone to fight, to just go on sheer enthusiasm. I think Ukraine needs also to develop a mobilization system where money is involved, where the army is becoming more professional. And that does depend on aid from the West,
1: because people can't just watch the movie and then go and fight. I have a question for Shashank here, which is, what do you think are the uh, sort of maximal things that the Russian army could achieve now? If everything went in its favor, how much territory could it really take?
2: My sense is that even with all of Ukraine's difficulties, I think it remains unlikely that Russia will make any very substantial territorial gains this year, unless America and Europe collectively truly collapse and fail to provide any kind of meaningful support. I've been talking to Western officials recently who have been emphasizing Russia just doesn't have the trained officers to oversee the kind of big sweeping maneuvers they would need to conduct to exploit any gap in the lines. Their domestic ammunition production isn't sufficient for meeting the needs of any offensive right now. Sanctions are hitting the Russian military industrial complex extremely hard. If we put that all together, I see a Russian army that may be in slightly better shape than Ukraine but it nonetheless is in no position to meet its maximalist objectives of rolling all the way to Kiev or taking over huge swaths of Ukraine. And that gives me some small crumbs of comfort. I was talking to other European intelligence officials in Munich in the last few days. They were saying that private Kremlin polling of the Russian people shows that they are very concerned about rising levels of war fatigue. There are serious questions about Russia's capacity to stay in this to stay cohesive and to maintain its own strength.
1: I I think Shashank's remarks about what Russia can actually do put some very important context onto this, which is it isn't as good as you think it is and isn't as bad as you think it is. This is a horrible, long-drawn-out war that could last for many years and will be a real struggle. And we just don't know where the breaking points are in Russia.
0: So two years in here, as much as it is about who has more ammunition and who has more resolve, it is also about whether these societies then can handle these strains and how these societies will handle these strains. Yeah,
3: no, completely. Putin, I think, is nervous, actually, because as Shashank says, the polling they're doing is showing that demand for it to end is very, very strong. I think Zelensky, who would have had elections in the spring, probably can't hold those elections. And I think the difficulty is that... With the lack of success on the battlefield and frustration in Ukraine, you still need to create some sort of political space for people to express that frustration. But my biggest fear is not actually the political turmoil in Ukraine, it's not the elections. My much bigger worry is this that Putin is fighting anthropological war. He wants to prove that people are low, that people are greedy and scared. And in that sense, it's completely about values. And my worry is if Ukraine goes more nationalistic, well, if it's not democratic, then Putin in a way has scored sort of a victory.
1: Yeah, I want to just carry on from what Arkady said because I think it's a key point. My question is not, is Ukraine going to end up being pro-Russian? It isn't, not for many years, if ever. It's, does it emerge as a democracy, as a country that can prosper Or does it sink into corruption and infighting? That's my worry about Ukraine. It's not that it's captured by Putin. It's that it doesn't complete
0: the journey to Europe. But there is another worry here now that for Ukrainians, Europe and the West might look less like the shining city on a hill later if military aid dries up now. That's something that Sarah was also looking into. She went to Kharkiv to speak again to someone that we heard from on the first anniversary of the invasion.
6: It feels like they're targeting people's homes deliberately this year.
4: Kate Bulhavlaska, or Kate from Kharkiv, as she's known on social media, lives in Ukraine's second biggest city in the Northeast. Aerial attacks on the city have picked up again this winter, making life here unpredictable. Um,
6: that's recent story when they hit oil storage and still they managed to hit private houses of people along with it. A family of, with three children who died that day. Do you still
4: feel, feel the impact of that? Or are you also becoming numb to news of...
6: No, no, there's no becoming numb when you see... A, I'm sorry for the vivid picture, but the burned body of four years old, there is no becoming numb.
4: Yeah. She takes me to the newly erected memorial for all of the children who have died in this war.
6: On top of it stands a child with the angel's wing, and another one is flying into the sky on the wings.
4: Can you read what the inscription on the marble block says?
6: Two little angels who met human cruelty so early and, unfortunately, will never grow up.
4: In the days after the invasion, Kate took to social media to bridge the gap between Ukrainians and their Western supporters. But she says it feels more and more like people aren't hearing the message anymore, particularly as she watches American support, Wayne.
6: It's really devastating. It's upsetting for every Ukrainian to see the support decreasing because without that weapon, we know that we are going to lose territory and the most importantly that we will lose our people. Every day, this help delays, we are losing defenders. We are losing defenders and people behind the front line too because of the lack of their defense. Even the motivation of defenders, I can't imagine them fighting in trenches in cold and listening that they do not deserve any support anymore. I I think people don't get the concept of how we buy time with lives of our people. Every second of our freedom is bought with lives when we don't have the international support. How important has hope been over the last two years? Hopeless life is, is terrible, it's not a life, so everybody needs hope. And international support was very uplifting At that matter. It was spectacular how the world came together to support us. And seeing it decreasing is upsetting, devastating, it's, it's terrible. Thank you. Thank you so much for uh, talking with us again. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening again and for supporting Ukraine. Please keep supporting.
0: Ed, I want to ask you how you read that sense of abandonment, which is surely shared fairly widely in Ukraine at this point.
1: Yeah, I think it's entirely justified, Jason. Just think of it from Ukraine's point of view. They've been supported hugely by the West, and then suddenly for internal reasons, the logic for America's inability to vote through this large package is driven by internal politics. It may masquerade as geopolitics, but it isn't. It's internal politics. And that seems from outside the United States, unbelievably foolish. I spoke about it actually at length on the podcast Checks and Balances for this week, which is coming out today. But it's about America's inability to see its real interests here and to rise above domestic politics. And I think frustration and anger at that and the consequences that are not just very, very bad for Ukraine, bad for Europe, but also bad for the United States is a reason to be angry.
0: I regret that we're sitting here Two years in, I regretted when we were sitting here when it was one year in. But keeping in mind, we have to think about this in long-term terms now. What should we be looking out for in the year ahead? What should we be expecting or or uh, particularly worrying about, I suppose? Shashank, would you like to start?
2: As we know historically, long wars are often won or lost economically, socially, politically. And what I'm looking at is the war at sea, the naval contest, Ukraine's ability to revive its economy... I'm also looking at what we call the campaign of deep strikes, the strikes deep behind enemy lines, both by Russia, which of course has been bombing Ukrainian cities relentlessly, but also at Ukraine's reciprocal campaign of strikes on Russia. And I think sometimes by focusing only on the land campaign, we have slightly taken our eye off the fact that Ukraine is now systematically hitting, striking, bombing Russian cities Russian arms factories, Russian airfields. And that has not just a military effect. I think it also has a fairly profound political effect. And I think that could have an interesting dynamic all of its own. In a way, not that much happened
3: over the past year on the battlefield or in terms of politics and social dynamic. I think if we're sitting here a year on, I think the picture is going to be very, very dramatically different. And I think partly for the reasons of politics, I think Putin is facing this impossible trilemma of funding the war, keeping the living standards and preventing inflation from spiraling. I think all the pressures inside Russia might be actually building up. I think probably things are going to go darker given what we just observed, the death of Alexei Navalny. And I think there'll be more repression. But remember this war was always the war on two fronts. And we've always described it as such in The Economist, that it's about what's happening in Russia. It's about what was happening in Russia that drove Putin to this war. It's about what's happening in Russia that I think will probably bring this war to the end. And of course, the battlefield is vital. But I think the the politics of society, the repression, the economy... All that, I think, will be very important. And of course, on the Ukrainian side, the same with elections and how the country fares and whether the society stays together and whether it manages to resist the understandable but ultimately self-destructive temptation to start this blame game, whether Ukraine can remember that it was attacked because of its idea of freedom, because of its idea of values, and it needs to hold on to those values. In that sense, Ukrainians fighting against Russian troops and all the people who in Russian jails are fighting exactly the same war. They are the allies against, ultimately, a destructive,
1: dehumanizing fascist regime. Jason, I think this year is going to belong to Russia and driven partly by the battlefield, partly by US politics. But the question I'm, I have in my mind is how do people respond to the fact that this is Russia's year? Does it generate within it a sense, actually, you know what? There's a lot at stake here. There's something for Europe to support. There's something for big parts of the American security establishment to support. That's my question. This is going to be Russia's year, but I think it's entirely possible that 2025 could start to be Ukraine's year again. Stresses on the Russian economy, fatigue in Russia as well, a response from Europe, and I hope from the United States to Ukraine's plight, all start to shift the balance again.
0: Shashank, Arkady, Ed, thank you very much indeed for your time and for better or for worse, talk to you in a year.
3: Thanks for having me, Jason. Thank you, Jason. Thanks, Jason. And Something tells me we'll talk before then as well.
0: Later today, Edward, Shashank, and Arkady will join our editor-in-chief, Zanny minton Beddos, in a live event to discuss these past two years of conflict and what lies ahead. That's at 5 p.m. London time. Google Economist subscriber events to sign up. Economist subscribers also have access to Next Year in Moscow, our eight-part series on Russia. A week ago, we were working on a special bonus episode, surveying the damage within Russia that another year of war and repression has done. Then, news of Alexei Navalny's death broke. We wanted to be able to reflect that change in our reporting, so that episode will come out next Saturday, the 2nd of March. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero.